So I'd like to introduce um, my colleague and mentor, Jennifer Brown, today. It's a great pleasure to have, to have her here today. She's coming um, over from uh, Lanakutra uh, Cancer Institute, where she's the director of the CLL Center. Thanks. Um, so uh, Dr. Brown uh, is actually a New Yorker. And uh, she did her undergraduate studies at Yale. And then she kept moving north. Uh, north. Uh, she did her uh, residency and fellowship at Harvard and uh, DFCI. And then she stayed on at, at DFCI. And uh, recently was uh, promoted to become an associate uh, professor there. So congratulations on that. Um, in the past several years, uh, Dr. Brown has really contributed greatly to the development of uh, novel therapies in B-cell malignancies with particular focus on CLL. Uh, essentially, all, all the new drugs that you uh, keep hearing about uh, have been introduced to the clinic with your help. That includes abrutinib, abinutuzumab, idolizumab, and she'll talk about a couple of uh, uh, more drugs here. But most that's less important. The most important aspect is that she has been extremely supportive of the translational uh, program that we are establishing here in uh, B-cell malignancies. So um, uh, Jennifer and I have known each other for about uh, five, six years now. And our first paper came out, uh, to, which we wrote together, came out four years ago when I was uh, when I started uh, my foray into the CLL field and uh, I needed some samples and guidance at that point. And um, uh, when I came to Dartmouth, our collaboration grew. And now we uh, co-authored a couple of uh, phase one clinical trials, as well as uh, writing together several papers. So it's been um, uh, a very productive uh, relationship. And uh, I'd like to thank you very much for coming here in person now. So um, uh, Dr. Brown has financial interests as a consultant for Pharmacyclics, uh, Vertex, Novartis, Beringer, Gilead, GSK, Roche Genentech, Emergent, and uh, Morphosis. Alan Hartford, and course, uh, who is a course director for the CMA activity, reports that her relationship with industry have been resolved by validating the content of the presentation through peer review. She does intend, uh, of course, to discuss off-label um, uh, and investigational use of uh, products such as Cedalalizib, IPI-145, CC-292, and SAR-245408. And she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So thank you very much. Thanks very much, Alexi. Very glad to be here. Hopefully you can hear me with this microphone. I'm probably going to come over here so I can see the slides. So my talk is in two portions. The first concerns our work defining the somatic genetics of CLL. And the second focuses on the novel targeted therapies we've been involved in developing. I thought I would start with just a few slides. Oh, these are the disclosures, which Alexi just read. Uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page about CLL, I have a few introductory slides about CLL, or chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is commonly said to be the most common adult leukemia, which I put in quotes because, as you know, it's really a mature B-cell malignancy, really more a lymphoma. There are 16,000 new cases per year. And I think of this disease as a chronic, incurable, low-grade lymphoma, with most patients presenting with an asymptomatic increase in lymphocyte count. And typically, these asymptomatic patients do not require therapy initially, sometimes not for many years. And as many as 20% of patients diagnosed with CLL may never require therapy. 
But once required, therapy tends to occur recurrently at shorter and shorter intervals. And usually the indications initially are symptoms, low blood counts, or large lymph nodes. And when we think about CLL prognostics, there have been two major prognostic factors for about the last 15 years. And these include so-called IGHV, which refers to the degree of somatic hypermutation in the immunoglobulin heavy chain variable region that's present in the CLL cells themselves. And chromosomal abnormalities, which have been typically identified by FISH, because metaphase karyotypes are often hard to get from CLL samples. So a word about the IGVH. The degree of somatic hypermutation is actually a continuum across all CLLs, but it's been found empirically, clinically, that there's a cutoff at about 2% difference from the closest germline match, where those CLLs that are 2% or less different from the closest match are so-called unmutated, <coughs> associated with steadily progressive disease, a median survival of about nine years, as shown here whereas those that are more than 2% mutated from their closest germline match are associated with very indolent disease, a median survival up in the mid-20 of years, shown here. And then the other key prognostic factor is chromosome abnormalities. As I said, the most common ones typically identified by FISH. This is the classic curve, overall survival curve, from the donor paper in the New England <coughs> Journal of Medicine, showing an overall survival for those CLLs with deletion 17P of only about two and a half years which has not changed much up until the present, although the novel agents are changing that now. And that's associated with loss of the P53 gene on 17P. And then deletion 11Q associated with loss of the ATM gene and a median survival of about seven years. The other chromosome abnormalities are less significant in terms of their prognostic significance often reverts more to the IGHV status. So if we put these two together, 17P deletion has the worst prognosis, followed by 11Q deletion, followed by other CLLs with unmutated IGHV, and then the mutated IGHV is the most favorable. So there are still many unmet needs in CLL. It remains difficult to estimate the time to treatment for early stage patients, some of whom may actually have relatively aggressive disease, even though they're presenting at an early stage. As I said, once treated, most patients relapse at progressively shorter intervals, becoming progressively resistant to therapy. Patients with 17P deletion or complex cytogenetics often don't respond to therapy even initially. Richter's transformation, when CLL transforms to an aggressive lymphoma, most commonly large cell lymphoma, is poorly responsive to therapy. And we know that elderly patients tolerate chemoimmunotherapy, which has historically been our best therapy, rather poorly. So we were interested a number of years ago in starting to apply genomic technologies to better categorize and subcategorize CLL and try to understand how better to treat it. And this started quite a while ago with SNP arrays and moved into whole exome sequencing, both of which I'll talk about. We're now working on RNA-seq as well as whole genome sequencing, but we don't yet have data from that. And so initially, we had studied about 170 CLLs with Affymetrix 6.0 SNP arrays. And you can see here in this array of the abnormalities that the genome is quite stable in CLL compared to most solid tumors. And the common fish abnormalities come up as you would expect, deletion of 11Q, 13Q, and 17P, and trisomy 12. We also found three other recurrent abnormalities at about the 5% level, gain of 3Q26 and 8Q24 and loss of 8P. 
And if we break this down into CLLs that remained untreated over the seven-year follow-up of the study, as compared to those that ultimately underwent treatment, you'll note that in the untreated CLLs, the genome is really extremely <laughs> stable, with the primary abnormalities being just trisomy 12 and deletion of 13Q, and very little else in many cases. Whereas the CLLs that underwent treatment do have a variety of other abnormalities, 11Q, 17P, as described by Fish, as well as the 3Q, 8Q gains, and 8P deletion. So a word about the 8Q24 gains. These affect the MYC gene. Many of them are whole chromosome arm gains, but we did have a couple of patients with focal <coughs> amplifications involving a region that's been described as an enhancer for MYC in other solid tumor models. And this region is well described from genome-wide association studies as having alleles that are associated with risk for a variety of solid tumors as well as CLL. We have a couple of patients with amplification just of that region, as well as other patients with amplification of the whole chromosome arm. And these are associated with a very short time to treatment as well as MYC overexpression. And in the region of 3Q26, again, similarly, many of these are whole chromosome arm amplifications, but there are a couple of focal amplifications involving just the kinase domain of PI3 kinase alpha isoform. Now, the alpha isoform is not traditionally thought to be most important in CLL. And in these particular CLLs with this amplification, we saw enhanced expression of alpha relative to delta, as well as enhanced complexing of alpha with the regulatory subunit, excuse me, of delta with the regulatory subunit, displacing alpha as is seen in the other CLLs, suggesting that in this subset, alpha may be more significant, which I'll come back to a little bit later. And then from this experiment, as well as work that many others have also shown, we found by SNP array that increased copy number abnormalities was associated with a worse prognosis, shorter time to treatment, and shorter overall survival. And this was true of all CLLs, as well as those without the deletions of 11Q or 17P that are classically associated with complex karyotype in CLL. So moving on to exome sequencing. We had started with what was at the time a relatively large sample set of 91 CLLs in collaboration with Kathy Wu as well as the Broad Institute. And we did this in order to try and capture the full range of heterogeneity of CLL, all the cytogenetic abnormalities as well as the mutation status, in hopes that we might identify subgroups of CLL that had particular genetic events. And so in this study, the overall somatic mutation rate was 0.6 mutations per megabase, which is quite low in general for cancer, similar to the way we saw stability of the karyotype. This shows the mutations per megabase for each sample. Two-thirds of them were chemotherapy-naive and one-third treated, and about the same distribution of synonymous and non-synonymous mutations, regardless of treatment status. And interestingly, there was no significant association between this mutation rate or any of the clinical features. So not the fish abnormalities, IGVH, prior treatment, or a clinical stage. <laughs> there were nine significantly mutated genes above the background rate that you would expect for the size of the gene and the region of the genome in this study. And TP53 and ATM were well described from candidate gene studies as being mutated significantly in CLL. So those were unsurprising. The more novel mutations included SF3B1, MITE88, and NOTCH1, which multiple other groups have also found to be among the more recurrent somatic mutations in CLL. And I'll say a word more about each of these. 
First, however, it did turn out that the way we designed the experiment did enable us to find some associations between these mutations and clinical features. So as you might expect, mutation of the p53 gene was common in 17p deletion, where the other p53 gene is deleted. And this had been known previously, again, from candidate gene studies. Interestingly, mutation of SF3B1 involved in RNA processing was associated with deletion of 11q. And this has been a reproducible finding by multiple other groups and in multiple other studies. But the underlying biology of that association is unclear. Similarly, NOTCH1 mutation was associated with trisomy 12. Again, reproducible amongst multiple groups and multiple studies. But why there's this association, we don't understand as yet. Now, those mutations are all associated with relatively aggressive CLL, the so-called unmutated IGHV CLL. And in fact, many of the recurrent mutations we found were more commonly associated with aggressive CLL. But interesting, MITE88, which is an adapter protein in inflammatory and toll-like receptor signaling pathways, and the mutations that we have are very similar to those that have also been seen in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and found to be activating diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Those, so MITE88 is actually associated with lower-risk CLL, mutated IGHV. But again, why these associations are the case is not understood biologically yet. So SF3B1 is a splicing factor, which was our most commonly mutated gene in 15% of the CLLs. This was entirely unexpected. It's involved in RNA processing, involved in three prime branch point selection. And we had 14 mutations in 14 patients, all in a restricted region of several exons, as shown at the bottom. And one particular mutation, K700E, was recurrent in 50% of the CLLs. And around this same time, mutations in SF3B1 were also described in myelodysplasia, as well as mutations in other splicing factors. In CLL, SF3B1 tends to be much more predominant than the other splicing factors, although there are mutations in a few of them. Now, why SF3B1 mutation is involved in CLL remains entirely obscure biologically. My collaborator, Kathy Wu, has been working intensively on this. And she has found that globally, there's missplicing of the three prime branch point in about 10 to 15% of transcripts in the SF3B1 mutants compared to non-mutant CLLs. But no specific targets or pathways have yet been clearly identified. And that also has obviously made it challenging thus far to think about how one would target this in the clinic. It is associated with a poor prognosis in, this, in our data set as well as in multiple other groups' data sets now. In multivariable analysis, SF3B1 mutation was associated with worse outcome along with IGVH unmutated status and deletion 17P and ATM mutation. And Davide Rossi of the Italian group found that SF3B1 mutations were less common in patients at diagnosis, just 5%, whereas in fludarabine refractory CLL, the rate went up to about 15%. But interestingly, not particularly common in Richter syndrome. So what about NOTCH1 mutation? It's the other most recurrent gene at the more than 10% level other than ATM and P53. So in our patient characteristics, set here. NOTCH1 mutation was associated with a greater likelihood of needing treatment and was nearly uniformly associated with higher risk unmutated IGHV. I already mentioned the association with trisomy 12, and we also see an association with 17P deletion. 
Interestingly, the notch mutations in CLL are predominantly a relatively weak frame shift deletion rather than the full spectrum of mutations that are more commonly seen in TALL. And again, why this is the case is not yet understood. <coughs> this again is work from the Rossi Italian group associating notch one mutations with poor outcome and actually interestingly with a higher risk of Richter's transformation, which again has been reproduced in multiple data sets, but biologically the basis for this is unclear. We've been working, starting to work with a number of notch inhibitors, in particular gamma secretase inhibitors in vitro, to try to establish what the appropriate <coughs> patient population would be to study in a clinical trial, for example, of notch inhibition, and what downstream biomarkers of notch activity in CLL are. They appear to be different from those in ALL. And I just showed this one preliminary data slide showing that the gamma secretase inhibitor does appear to differentially induce apoptosis in notch mutants compared to wild type, and does so at about the same level as abrutinib in vitro, although this is not a marked effect, as abrutinib and many other drugs are not markedly cytotoxic in this model system. But we're hoping to further elucidate targets of notch and eventually move to a clinical trial in CLL patients. Now, Rossi and the Italian group took SF3B1 and NOTCH1 and added them into our traditional prognostic model of cytogenetics in CLL. And they found that both NOTCH and SF3B1 mutation were associated with an adverse prognosis approximately <coughs> equivalent to 11Q, but not quite as bad as 17P, which is shown here. However, these are not yet routine tests in clinical practice in most locations, although we are doing them <coughs> at our CLL center now. We then expanded the sample set up to 160 patients of whole exomes for CLL. And the most recurrent mutations remain the same, SF3B1, P53, NOTCH, and ATM. And then there's a long tail of mutations that are now statistically significant, occurring about the 3 or 4% level. You'll note that NRAS and KRAS now come up as significant, for example. And in this analysis, we're able to combine copy number as well as the read percentage from the next generation sequencing to generate an estimate of the clonality of the mutations in the samples. And so it turns out that the most clonal mutations were relatively CLL or B cell specific, such as MITE88, trisomy 12, and deletion 13Q, whereas many of the more cancer related mutations, such as SF3B1 mutation, P53 mutation, 11Q or 17P deletion, were typically subclonal in most of our CLLs. We had 18 samples which we studied at serial time points at a median of three and a half years apart. And time point one is shown on the x-axis and time point two on the y-axis. So on the diagonal are those samples in which the fraction of the cells with the mutation was the same at the first and second time point. When the fraction of cells with the mutation went up, then the mutation moved above the line and is shown in red, as with SF3B1 on the right. And so six of these 18 samples, the patients did not have any intervening therapy, and five out of six of them showed the same clonal architecture at the subsequent as at the prior time. Twelve of the patients did undergo intervening therapy. And 10 of those showed expansion of subclones, which were often enriched in what we call driver mutations, which means they're genes that are statistically significantly more commonly mutated in cancer or in CLL. 
And so this begs the question, were these adverse CLLs that developed clonal evolution and therefore required treatment, or did treatment actually lead to the evolution? And we really can't answer that question from this experiment. But we did look at whether having a pre-existing subclonal driver was associated with clinical outcome, which is shown in this slide. And in this retrospective experiment, it was the case that having a subclonal driver at time point one was associated with a shorter time to next therapy. Now, this really needs to be validated in prospective uniformly treated population cohorts, which is work that is now ongoing. And I should say that this was even true in multivariable analysis in our data set, where subclonal drivers and 17p deletion were the two primary predictors of this shorter time to treat. Okay, so where are we with genomic insights and high-risk CLL and targets? Well, we've known for a long time that 17p and p53 mutation are very important. They're higher risk than 11q and higher risk than unmutated IGHV. Those are all very well established. I would say that at this point, the association of genomic complexity with adverse prognosis is also quite well established, but is not readily actionable in the clinic. The subclonal driver mutations, again, was a finding that we found which needs to be validated in other studies and prospectively, but that was also associated with adverse prognosis. In terms of novel targets, there really was no low-hanging fruit. SF3B1 and NOTCH1 are the most commonly mutated at 5 to 15 percent, but neither of them has an immediate obvious biology in CLL or immediate obvious targetability, like, for example, an activated kinase would. <clears throat> but hopefully in the next few years, those will be targetable. And then we have amplification, but not mutation, of PI3 kinase alpha and MYC at the 4 to 6 percent level, and then a long tail of less common driver mutations. And so that long tail of less common driver mutations has led to the idea that rather than having single driver genes, as in Waldenstrom's, where Mighty 88 is mutated in 90 percent or so of them, we may have more driver pathways. And so, for example, splicing and notch signaling were identified as driver pathways from the sequencing, which was not previously anticipated, whereas it was well anticipated that DNA damage was a pathway important in CLL, as well as, for example, B cell receptor signaling. Now I'm going to turn my attention to talk about B-cell receptor signaling. And this pathway has obviously been extensively studied in CLL and is known to be activated in CLL. We know that mediators, SIC and LIN kinases, are constitutively phosphorylated in CLL, and that the downstream target NF-kappa B shows higher basal activity than in normal B-cells and is typically further inducible with IgM stimulation, especially in unmutated IGHV and ZAP70-positive CLLs. BCR engagement enhances CLL survival, and BCR pathway genes are upregulated, especially in the lymph node microenvironment. <clears throat> so you may say, well, do we have activating mutations? The answer is not very many in the proximal B cell receptor pathway. These are the couple of mutations we have in this version of the pathway in our data set of 160 CLLs. And so there are two LIN mutations and one PI3 kinase alpha mutation. But by and large, this pathway is constitutively activated in the absence of activating mutations. That has not prevented it from being an excellent target, though, for study, as we're all aware, with a wide variety of clinical trials in the last five years targeting various kinases in this pathway. Desatinib, we initially studied in a phase two study as a LIN inhibitor, although it's since been described to be a BTK inhibitor as well. Fostamatinib as a SICK inhibitor and Everolimus as an mTOR inhibitor, all older studies. And then since then, of course, much attention is focused on PI3 kinase and BTK, which I'll talk about a number of these drugs in CLL. 
Now, inhibitors of this pathway have shown a very interesting pattern of response that was not anticipated initially in the clinic. And so normally in CLL, we expect the white count to go down as a marker of response because those are the disease cells and they're dying. But what happens in patients treated with these drugs actually is that they feel better immediately and their lymph nodes shrink immediately, but their white count goes up actually sometimes substantially, four or five or six fold on occasion. Typically levels off around the first or second month after initiation of the drug and then declines. It may decline to a new plateau or back to baseline or below. And that seems to depend on both the patient population and the drug. But this has led to a redefinition of response criteria in CLL actually. So that patients who meet all criteria for partial response but still have an elevated lymphocyte count are now called partial response with lymphocytosis if they're being treated with one of these drugs. And so this is a chart of, to just illustrate some of the activity of these drugs. I mentioned dasatinib, fostamatinib, and evarolimus. They all have about a 50% lymph node response, so 50% chance of a 50% reduction in lymph nodes. They all increase the lymphocyte count. So the traditional response rates are low based on the lymphocyte count being elevated. And the progression-free survival is about six months, so really nothing to write home about at all. But with the PI3 kinase and BTK inhibitors, we've done a lot better. And it's not clear if that's because those are better targets or we have better drugs. So in terms of PI3 kinase, I'll just remind you that the PI3 kinase is composed of a P85 regulatory subunit and a P110 catalytic subunit. The catalytic subunit comes in these four class one isoforms, alpha, beta, delta, and gamma, where alpha and beta are broadly expressed in embryonic lethal and knockout mice. Delta and gamma have limited expression in leukocytes, and delta in knockout mice has a phenotype primarily affecting B cell signaling development and survival, making it a good target in B cell malignancies. Gamma, the knockout phenotype is primarily focused on neutrophil and T cell function, but gamma is expressed in CLL cells, which we'll come back to. So adelalisib, which has been formerly known as GS1101 and Cal101, is a highly selective inhibitor of the delta isoform based on these isoform-specific cell-based assays. It has an EC50 of 8 nanomolar and a basophil assay, and less than tenfold shift in whole blood. And this has been studied in a phase one study, which the final results of which were presented last year and is now finally in press in blood. And we reported on 54 patients with CLL out of a phase one study that actually enrolled about 190 patients with hematologic malignancies. The CLL patients were treated at doses ranging from 50 milligrams BID to 350 milligrams BID with continuous therapy. About 70% of them were refractory to their most recent prior regimen, and they had a median of five prior therapies. So this was a very heavily pretreated high-risk population. 80% had bulky lymphadenopathy, 90% unmutated IGVH, and about a quarter each had 17P11Q deletion, 17% had notch mutation. This summarizes the response data. And again, you'll note on the right the pattern of response, a very rapid lymph node response, but this very rapid increase in lymphocyte count, which with this drug in this study declines back to about baseline by 12 months, but many patients are still at baseline or above and therefore not meeting response criteria by way of their lymphocyte count at the one-year mark. And so when we look at overall response, 
Lymph node response was seen in 81%. And then overall response by traditional criteria was seen in 39%, meaning lymphocyte count back to 50% of baseline. But another 33% of patients had the new category of PR with persistent lymphocytosis. And there's not really any evidence that this lymphocytosis is a clinical problem. For example, the progression-free survival for patients with PR with lymphocytosis or standard PR in the study was similar, within the caveats of patients being treated on different dose levels. This shows the plasma exposure in the CLL patients, which is starting to plateau around 150 milligrams BID, which was selected as the recommended phase two dose, as well as the best nodal response, which is also plateauing at about that level. At that dose, also, transaminitis was starting to be seen more commonly, more in the lymphoma patients than CLL. So the combination of these three factors led to the selection of the dose of 150 BID. This is the progression-free survival and duration of response based on dose cohort. And so for the patients treated at the recommended phase two dose or higher, the median PFS was 29 months, duration of response also 29 months which given how heavily pretreated these patients are, was really quite excellent. This is some pharmacodynamic assay looking at phospho-AKT, which you'll see at baseline in the CLL cells, there's constitutive phosphorylation of AKT compared to the normal B cells. And then at day eight and day 28, troughs, adelalisib reduced this back to the baseline, similar to the normal B cells. Adelis have also reduced a variety of plasma cytokines produced either by CLL or by stromal cells. There's very little upfront data in CLL with adelalisib, but there is one phase two study in combination with rituximab in elderly patients 65 or older, which was presented by Susan O'Brien last year. And this regimen was extremely active with a response rate of 97% and complete response of 19%. All 917P patients responded. <clears throat> and as of this 24-month time point, the progression-free survival was 93%, and there had been no on-study progressions and no events at all in the 917P patients, so suggesting quite an active drug. And then just at ASH in December and recently published online in the New England Journal of Medicine are the results of the first registration trial for adelalisib. This was a phase three study of adelalisib rituximab compared to placebo rituximab in relapsed CLL patients with comorbidities who were not fit for chemotherapy. And this is the progression-free survival curve, which you can see the median is not reached in the adelalisib rituximab arm, whereas the placebo rituximab arm had a median PFS of about five and a half months. This study was criticized, including by me, because the rituximab schedule was really very non-standard. It was doses every two weeks for three months, followed by monthly doses. The PFS, however, comes out not that different than we would expect with ofatumumab, which would have been, in many of our minds, a more appropriate comparator. There was an overall survival difference at this very early time point, only three events in the adelalisib arm and nine events in the placebo arm, however. And this trial is expected to serve as the basis for approval of adelalisib in relapsed CLL later this year. So what about other PI3 kinase inhibitors in CLL? 
The other one that's made significant inroads is IPI145, which is made by Infinity. Now, this is a delta inhibitor as well, but it's also a potent gamma inhibitor. Now, as I mentioned, <laughs> gamma is expressed in CLL cells, but it's also expressed in neutrophils and T cells. So gamma could potentially add efficacy, but it could potentially also add toxicity. And how that's going to play out is not entirely clear. The phase one study in heme malignancies for this drug is done. And the MTD was 75 milligrams BID, but the dose being taken forward in CLL is actually 25 milligrams BID, which is based on complete inhibition of delta and partial inhibition of gamma at that dose, as well as the fact that there appeared to be no difference in response rate between the different doses. And so in 43 relapsed refractory CLL patients, 98% had some responsive nodes, and 89% had 50% reduction, as shown on the waterfall plot. The data is still very short in follow-up, so many patients still have persistent lymphocytosis. So the official response rate is 47%, but again, the difference between that and the nodal response is likely ongoing lymphocytosis. And this drug has entered a registration trial, which has just started this year, IPI-145 versus ofatumumab as a phase three study. So you might say, what about pan-PI3 kinase inhibitors? They've gotten little attention in the world of CLL. Experience <laughs> remains pretty limited. We did a small phase 1B cohort of a drug called SAR245408, formerly known as XL147, which is a pan-PI3 kinase inhibitor. And we did this at its solid tumor MTD, which was 600 milligrams daily. There were 10 CLL patients enrolled, and about half were refractory. Most had bulky disease, and there were two with 17P deletion, five with 11Q deletion. So it's reasonably high-risk disease. It shows the same pattern of response, but at least this drug didn't show the same depth or quality of response as we've seen with the delta or delta gamma inhibitors. The nodal response rate was 60%. Partial response rate was 40%. Some of them were rather durable, though, ongoing at 15 to 22 months. It's unclear if this drug will move forward in CLL at the present. So we fill in our table. You can see that by nodal response, Adelalisib, or GS1101, and IPI145 are standing out of the pack in terms of the quality of responses. They still produce lymphocytosis, and that means their overall response is somewhat lower. Again, the significance of that is not clear in terms of ultimate duration of response and progression-free survival. And Adelalisib, the PFS data that we have are only from a phase one heavily pretreated population at mixed dose levels but at the recommended phase two dose or higher was 32 months. And IPM 145 is too early. So what about BTK inhibitors? I'm going to talk both about abrutinib and CC292, which is formerly known as AVL292. So as everyone's aware, mutations in BTK cause the human disease X-linked agammaglobulinemia. They also prevent B-cell maturation. And inhibition of BTK in vitro will block BCR signaling-induced apoptosis in B-cells. So this suggests that this is an excellent target in B-cell malignancies. As you know, abrutinib is a covalent inhibitor which binds to cysteine-481 and BTK with an IC50 of 0.5 nanomolar. It's orally bioavailable. And because of the covalent inhibition, once daily dosing results in 24-hour sustained target inhibition despite a short half-life, a short PK half-life. So the data that led to the approval of abrutinib in CLL about a week and a half ago were published in the New England Journal of Medicine last summer by John Bird. And this progression-free survival curve summarizes 
more or less what you need to know about it, <laughs> which is that in heavily pretreated CLL patients with a median of four prior regimens, the progression-free survival at 26 months, a little over two years, was 75%, which is really quite remarkable for a patient population where you might expect a progression-free survival of on the order of six or eight months with most drugs. And that, so half of those patients were treated at the approved dose, and those were the patients who served as the basis for the approval even though this was not originally intended as a registration trial. And then 31 treatment-naive patients over 65 were also treated with single-agent ibrutinib, and their 26-month PFS is 96%. There's been exactly one event in those 31 patients. Now, the patients who are relapsing, though, are the ones we might expect, the higher-risk patients with deletions of 17P and 11Q, as you can see here on the left. And their curves are continuously dropping off, and the two-year progression-free survival for the 17P patients is about 57%. So their median is a little over two years, which is much better than anything else we've had with 17P, but they are clearly still relapsing. And no difference based on IGVH status. So I wanted to tell you about a combination study that we did, one of perhaps what will be, this is a very early effort to combine ibrutinib with other agents to perhaps result in longer responses in the higher risk patients. This was a chemoimmunotherapy combination study of ibrutinib with bendamustine rituximab in which 30 patients who were relapsed were treated or with FCR. Now, that cohort only had three patients enrolled because the eligibility were very limited to patients who were purine analog naive but relapsed in candidates for FCR. And there are not so many of those patients. So I'm mostly going to focus on the BR patients. And this was just investigator choice as to which arm patients enrolled on based on their prior therapies. So the BR patients had a median of two prior therapies, about half had bulky disease, half were cytopenic. And 37% were purine analog refractory, where this was defined as relapse within 12 months of your most recent prior regimen. You'll note that a quarter had 17P deletion and 43% had 11Q deletion. So it was a reasonably high-risk population. As you would expect, the addition of chemoimmunotherapy <coughs> abrogated the lymphocytosis that we see with a brutinib single agent, as shown on the left. Although similar to with adelalisib, it's not clear that this lymphocytosis matters. In fact, the progression-free survival is the same for patients with and without prolonged lymphocytosis. And there's a slight deepening, perhaps, of lymph node responses with the BR. Response rate was 93%, CR rate 17%, nodular PR rate 10%. And the progression-free survival at 15 months is 78%. So, I'd like to take this opportunity to comment that what we've seen so far from abrutinib as a single agent, abrutinib with rituximab, and abrutinib with bendamustine rituximab are actually all fairly similar progression-free survivals. There hasn't really been any obvious improvement with the addition of rituximab or BR. Now, this may be because these are all small phase two studies and there's a lot of patient selection involved, but it's possible that these agents aren't adding that much to abrutinib. And in fact, John Bird's group has recently presented data suggesting that abrutinib may inhibit ADCC in vitro. And if so, that could potentially be antagonistic with rituximab. And so it, we're going to require both more scientific translational studies as well as more clinical studies to really clarify this. But it, it's just an interesting observation that's fairly evident in the data so far. 
And in terms of ibrutinib and FCR, which is potentially subject to the same ADCC problem, of course, the three patients who were treated on this cohort had been previously treated with lenalidomide and rituximab on a clinical trial. They all completed all six cycles of FCR, one with a dose reduction. And both the overall response and complete response were 100%. And two of them are MRD negative. And all three of these patients remain progression-free on ibrutinib with two-year follow-up. And so based on these data, we are doing a small phase two study in young, fit, untreated CLL patients to assess this combination further as MRD negative complete remission would be the first step toward cure. So that's how we've actually powered that study. Okay. So a segue to talking about the other BTK inhibitor, I wanted to comment about abrutinib's activity and whether, at least raise the question whether BTK inhibition is in fact the sole mechanism of abrutinib. This is the kinase profile of abrutinib from a, the paper describing it a number of years ago in PNAS. And it inhibits 19 other kinases other than BTK with an IC50 less than 100 nanomolar. And six of them have a cognate cysteine very similar to the one in BTK, suggesting the potential for covalent inhibition. And in fact, John Bird's group has recently shown that abrutinib can covalently inhibit ITK as well as BTK. And that's the proposed mechanism by which ibrutinib might inhibit ADCC. And I raise this because the other BTK inhibitor we're going to talk about, CC292, is much more specific. It doesn't inhibit ITK, it doesn't inhibit EGFR, and it doesn't inhibit SARC family kinases. It's much more BTK specific than ibrutinib. And from this normal volunteer study, it's just a nice graph of the decoupling of PK and PD from the covalent inhibition. This inhibitor, just like abrutinib, is a covalent inhibitor. It binds to the same cysteine, but with a different chemistry. And so you see the rapid uh, PK in blue, but sustained PD effect of BTK occupancy in red. So we've been leading a phase one multicenter study of this drug in which there were initially five daily dosing cohorts, three plus three design. And then we've escalated the dose further up to 1,000 milligrams daily and also added two BID dosing cohorts with larger cohorts of 12 patients. And there have been expansions at 750 milligrams daily as well as 500 milligrams BID, which is the likely recommended phase two dose. So 84 CLL patients have been enrolled. <clears throat> A little over half have advanced stage disease, a median of three prior therapies. About a third are refractory. 21% 11Q, 24% 17P. So this is not as heavily pretreated or refractory population as we saw with some of the other drugs. The study is closed enrollment now, but follow-up is still pretty short, especially on the 500 milligram BID expansion cohort with a median of six cycles, the <clears throat> cycle being a month. Most of those patients do remain on treatment, although most patients of the lower-dose cohorts have come off. This is the nodal response over time based on the dosing cohorts. And you'll note that at the low daily dose cohorts, nodal response was not that great, 25% or so. And as we've increased the daily dose and then moved to the BID dosing, we're getting significantly deeper nodal responses. And the waterfall plot, this is at the two highest daily doses as well as the two BID dosing doses, about a 60% nodal response rate, and no difference based on high-risk 17P or not, similar to what we see with abrutinib or adelalicin. 
total response is 55 to 67 percent, depending on the cohort. That includes official responses by standard criteria plus partial responders with lymphocytosis. This drug does induce lymphocytosis, but not quite as profoundly as abrutinib or adelalicin. And so more of these are true partial responses than with those drugs. And there's no difference in nodal or partial response based on 11Q or 17P deletion. You'll note that with unmutated IGVH, partial response and nodal response are similar. And that's because lymphocytosis resolves more quickly in the higher risk unmutated IGVH with this drug, which has also been seen with abrutinib. All right, so if we fill in our table with abrutinib and CC292, you can see the nodal response with abrutinib is very high, as you would expect, 88%, similar to the delta and gamma delta PI3 kinase inhibitors. It is not as high with CC292. And it's not clear to me if this is because CC292 is not as good a drug or because it's a more specific BTK inhibitor and some of the effects of abrutinib are due to effects on other enzymes. Response rates, you can see abrutinib is standing out quite well there, although some of that is due to early follow-up with IPI-145, for example, with the high lymphocytosis rate. But with CC292, not that much of that is due to lymphocytosis, so probably the higher response rate is to some extent real. And with progression-free survival, abrutinib has really by far the best data at the moment, followed by adelalisib, but again, adelalisib is only phase one data. And most of the other agents are too early. But certainly the most promising drugs at the moment are abrutinib, adelalisib, and IPI-145 likely as well, although we don't have good follow-up on it. So in summary of this section, BCR signaling is active in CLL despite the absence of recurrent activating mutations. And this likely relates to chronic activation by the microenvironment. It's also been suggested that the receptor itself may auto-activate. Targeted therapies against the BCR pathway show an unusual pattern of response with induction of lymphocytosis. They're highly effective with low toxicity. The toxicity is so low, I didn't really feel it incumbent upon me to talk much about it here, in fact. And these drugs are likely to significantly alter the CLL treatment landscape in the coming years. But there are many, many questions that haven't even begun to be addressed with these drugs. And they include, do we use them as a single agent or in combination with antibodies or chemoimmunotherapy? I raised the question that it's been suggested, at least by John Bird's group, that abrutinib but not, not adelalisib may inhibit ADCC, and that may affect how we combine them. Progression-free survivals look similar. Ultimately, we may want to combine these novel agents with each other rather than older therapies. But the rational basis for that hasn't even begun to be explored yet. Then there's the problem of whether therapy must be continuous. If patients are going to be on these drugs for 10 or 15 years, what are the long-term toxicities? It seems likely there may be some immunologic long-term toxicities, which at short one-year follow-up have not appeared too significant, but follow-up is still short. There's also been a suggestion with abrutinib that relapses may be more fulminant or more commonly Richter's transformation. But the number of patients who have relapsed and been studied is actually pretty limited, so this is still not entirely clear. And then the corollary of that is how we salvage those who relapse, which is also there's extremely limited data on at the moment. And so ultimately, do we use sequential individual novel agents, or do we try to combine them to get deeper remissions? Because as I showed you, most of these drugs are not inducing complete remissions. They're mostly partial remissions that are unusually stable compared to what we normally expect. And so some obvious potential rational combinations include multiple pathway inhibitors, a BTK inhibitor, PI3 kinase inhibitor, perhaps the novel CD20 antibody, obinutuzumab. 
And BCL2 antagonists, at least in vitro, do appear to have synergistic activity with many of these inhibitors. And the answers to these questions may to some extent depend on mechanisms of relapse and resistance, which again were in the infancy of studying. I mentioned that about 5% of CLLs have alpha, PI3 kinase alpha amplification. And we're very interested in studying that as a mechanism of resistance to adelalisib, which we're actively involved in currently sequencing and characterizing a cohort of patients who are adelalisib resistant, but we don't have any data yet. And then there's, of course, a possibility of upregulating or mutating other targets or downstream effectors. There's a little bit more data in BTK, which I'll show you in a minute. Mutation of the target cysteine has been described in a handful of patients. And then, of course, there's the theoretical possibility of other bypassing somatic mutations. So in the last few minutes, I'm just going to talk a little bit about abrutinib resistance. This slide is from Stefan Stilgenbauer and shows the results of six patients who initially responded to abrutinib and then relapsed on abrutinib and were studied with whole XM sequencing and RNA-seq. And five out of six had mutation of cysteine 481, the target cysteine of abrutinib to serine in BTK. And then there were also two mutations in phospholipase C gamma 2, which is the immediate substrate of BTK. I think these are perhaps the best data that we have, that BTK is really the most important target of abrutinib. But this is obviously still relatively early data and small numbers of patients. There are likely to be other mechanisms of resistance as well. One thing that we've been interested in studying that we've started studying in vitro is whether some of our mutation profiles might confer relative <laughs> resistance to abrutinib. And in this vein, we've been looking at CLLs that are mutated in NF-kappa V pathway genes, which some of which are illustrated here, MITE88, NRAS, KRAS, and RIPK1 are recurrent mutations. And then there are a handful of individually mutated genes. But it comes to a total of about 20% of the patients have mutation in some NF-kappa B pathway gene, as described by the IPA database. <coughs> and so if we look at their patient characteristics, we broke this down by the MITE88 mutant patients, because that's the single most recurrent mutation versus the other NF-kappa B mutants versus those that are wild type for the pathway. And the MITE88 mutants, as I mentioned earlier, are universally associated with low-risk mutated IGVH. They're almost all associated with low-risk negativity for ZAP70. And they have low-risk cytogenetics. The other NF-kappa B mutants, in contrast, are about the same as the remaining population for IGVH and ZAP70, but they're enriched in 17P deletion in about a third, as well as trisomy 12 in about a third, which means they could potentially be enriched in that population of 17P patients we saw who are more likely to relapse off of brutinib, although we don't know that yet. And so we were interested in studying these CLLs in vitro, assess their survival compared to wild-type CLLs, as well as their responsiveness to abrutinib or to SN50 as an inhibitor of NF-kappa B. And this was with and without IgM stimulation that served to activate the BCR. And so looking at the primary CLL themsel CLLs themselves, first with the MITE88 mutants, they show poor intrinsic survival in vitro, and they're sensitive to both drugs, and their survival is enhanced by IgM stimulation, all of which is fairly much what we would expect for quote unquote normal CLLs. If we look at the RIPK1 mutants, two mutants in particular were appeared 
were expected to have particularly important functional effects on the protein, the Q375 nonsense and K599R. And you see that those enhance the baseline survival in vitro quite significantly and are associated with relative resistance to SN50 and abrutinib and less responsiveness to IgM stimulation. RAS mutants, and these mutants are universally the ones that have been well described in solid tumors, so the common mutants. KRAS-Q61H in particular has better baseline survival and appears quite resistant to abrutinib and no effect of IgM. Well, it depends on the drug, but in those two cases, not much effect of IgM stimulation. And then we have a variety of single mutants, including CART11 and PIK3CA, both of which are relatively resistant to SN50 and partially resistant to abrutinib, but still show good response to IgM. So where did this leave us? Well, unsurprisingly, it seems that somatic mutations in different NF-kappa-B pathway genes probably heterogeneously affect cell survival and sensitivity to drugs, and therefore can't be grouped together, unsurprisingly. There are certain mutants, mostly mighty 88 mutants, that seem to have poor intrinsic survival, and that's usually associated with drug sensitivity. Other mutants, most notably RIPK1 and RAS, are relatively more resistant to NF-kappa-B and abrutinib treatment, and that's usually associated with better in vitro survival. So we're rather limited in how well we can study these in the primary CLLs, so we've started cloning them to assess them better in cell lines, and this is just preliminary data looking at the RIPK1 Q375 nonsense mutant with an NF-kappa-B reporter assay. And we do find that RIPK1 expression is associated with significant NF-kappa-B activation, which is abolished by the nonsense mutant, although the protein is expressed, a shorter N-terminal isoform. <clears throat> now, why it's the case that abolishing NF-kappa-B activation would be associated with better survival and abrutinib resistance is somewhat mysterious to us, and we're trying to sort this out now as well as look at a couple of the other mutants. So in summary, for somatic mutations in CLL, SF3B1 and NOTCH1 are the most recurrently mutated, and they're associated with poor prognosis, but somewhat difficult to target in clinic, as I said, although hopefully the next few years we'll make significant inroads on that. Other recurrent driver mutations generally less than 5%. Again, harder to target in a small clinic population. Genomic complexity and subclonal driver mutations have been associated with poor prognosis. It's a little unclear how this will impact our therapy at present. And the subclonal driver mutations have to be validated prospectively as well, which is work which is ongoing clinical trial samples. And although the BCR pathway inhibitors have very high clinical activity, mutational activation of the pathway is uncommon. It'll be interesting to see what mutations other than the cysteine-481 emerge out of selective pressure on abrutinib. And we have some early preliminary data suggesting that some pre-existing mutants for example, RAS, which occurs at about the 3 to 4% level in CLL, may be associated with resistance, at least in vitro. And so we'll be interested to follow that up in clinical samples. So thank you very much. I'd like to thank members of my lab, especially Bethany, Raina, and Josephine, who are doing the genomics. My collaborator, Kathy Wu, as well as Gaddy Getz at the Broad Institute, my colleagues in the lymphoma program at the Farber, as well as my funding sources. Thank you. So basically this is looking at the peripheral blood cells.
how representative is this um, of what's happening in the niche, say, whether it's a link node or a bone or whatever, or both, you might consider a niche. How, how representative is that? Right. Well, so I don't think we know. I think it's an open question whether it's possible that the niche is relatively genetically homogeneous with what recirculates through the blood, right? But that pathway activation and epigenetics may be more altered, right? So, but we are actually looking into this now. We have Adrian Wiesner's samples, the match, lymph node, blood, and bone marrow samples, which are being sequenced together. We also are looking in patients treated with abrutinib and adelalicib pre and at short time points, like one week, two week, four week, which presumably is going to be associated with redistribution of niche cells into peripheral blood. And it, because of my interest in notch, I think notch may well be much more important in the niche than in peripheral blood. And so we, are, we have some matched blood and bone marrow samples that we're pursuing in notch mutant versus wild type. And, working on getting lymph node samples. but it, It's obviously much harder to get samples from microenvironment. Right. How much redistribution do you get from <coughs> circulation back to the lymph node, particularly after you've had lymphocytosis? Yeah, so no one really knows exactly. I mean, you don't get regrowth. So you get this marked observation of reduced lymph nodes and substantially increased white count. But the white count doesn't actually go up enough to account for how much the tumor burden decreases if you measure it. So there's a lot of cell death happening somewhere. And over time, you don't see that the lymph nodes cycle up and down if patients remain on drug. If you stop drug at early time points, so if you put people on for a week and then you stop, you get immediate reversal. The white count goes back and the lymph nodes come back up. You start the drug two days later, same thing happens again. Lymph nodes shrink, white count goes up. It's fairly remarkable. That's, I think it, so there's, I think it's to some extent shifting a homeostasis of how many cells are held in the microenvironment niches versus let out into the blood. But then there's also some amount of death phenomenon that's associated with that. And no one's done a, been able to do a really good job of measuring it. There are a couple studies where people are trying to use deuterated water to look at turnover rates. And it, it, there haven't been any sort of well-defined analyses presented of that yet. But I think they're churning through the data. It would be interesting to know whether those newly circulating cells retain the resistance that you see in the lymph node or whether they would still be sensitive to ABT199. Yeah, so, so the only thing to say about that is that people have observed that they have higher expression of CD38, higher expression of key 67 in that very early redistribution phase, all of thing, with things that are associated with lymph node residents. I don't think anyone has taken any cells at a short time point and put them in vitro and seen if they share, if the sensitivity to ABT199 reverts or goes up again in contrast to what you would see in the lymph node. Of course, clinically with 199, in contrast to the in vitro data, we do get rapid resolution of lymph nodes. When you showed us the uh, sequential or variety of trials that were being conducted and the variation in outcome, you mentioned that it wasn't really clear whether they're simply you had some drugs were better than others or whether some targets were better than others. 
How do drug developers go about trying to sort that out? Strikes me as a rather difficult challenge. Yeah, that's true. I. Well, so I think, for example, if we can try and sort out a little bit better whether abrutinib has activities other than against BTK, then we might have a better idea if BTK by itself is an adequate target or if there are other significant activities. But how you do that in vivo is challenging, right? And like Lynn or SICK, where we don't have a great inhibitor that's made it into the clinic, I suppose we don't really know until we get a better inhibitor. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mentioned that because I think it's not clear from the data, but I don't have a great resolution of the problem. Do you have a thought? No, I, I was thinking as you were explaining, I, I didn't have a thought when I asked the question, but as you were talking about it, <laughs> um, I was thinking that, uh, and I know that this is done in some situations, that really measuring the uh, ablation of the targets strikes me as absolutely critical. And I think doing these trials when you're not doing that is not a good idea. And so um, I think we'd like to, those of us who aren't actually doing this kind of work, and think about you know the energy that you put into it and the commitment of resources, it would really be nice to set the expectation that demonstrating uh, inhibition of the target is sort of a key element of, of every one of these trials. Yeah, no, I think that's very important. Although even that, so with BTK, that has some limitations because both with CC292 and abrutinib, you do get complete ablate, a complete occupancy of BTK by the drug sustained over the 24-hour period, but we're not getting the same degree of clinical response. So then you ask, well, are they both getting into the niche the same way? Because this is in peripheral blood and we don't quite have lymph node data. Celgene actually does have some lymph node biopsies where they're trying to look at BTK occupancy and lymph nodes, but I haven't seen any results of that yet. But that's part of why, for example, we haven't moved ahead with a NOTCH trial. We don't really have a good biomarker to know that we're actually inhibiting NOTCH, and we don't, we don't know what the the key pathway is yet, so we're trying to sort that out before we move ahead with a trial. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much.